Section four of the Law by Frederic Bastiat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. The Law by Frederic Bastiat. Section four. With this understanding, let us examine the value, the origin, and the tendency of this popular aspiration, which pretends to realize the general good by general plunder. The socialists say, since the law organizes justice, why should it not organize labor, instruction, and religion? Why? Because it could not organize labor, instruction, and religion without disorganizing justice. For remember that law is force, and that consequently the domain of the law cannot properly extend beyond the domain of force. When law and force keep a man within the bounds of justice, they impose nothing upon him but a mere negation. They only oblige him to abstain from doing harm. They violate neither his personality, his liberty, nor his property. They only guard the personality, the liberty, the property of others. They hold themselves to be on the defensive. They defend the equal right of all. They fulfill a mission whose harmlessness is evident, whose utility is palpable, and whose legitimacy is not to be disputed. This is so true that, as a friend of mine once remarked to me, to say that the aim of the law is to cause justice to reign is to use an expression that is not rigorously exact. It ought to be said, the aim of the law is to prevent injustice from reigning. In fact, it is not justice that has an existence of its own, it is injustice. The one results from the absence of the other. But when the law, through the medium of its necessary agent, force, imposes a form of labor, a method or subject of instruction, a creed or a worship, it is no longer negative. It acts positively upon men. It substitutes the will of this legislature for their own will, the initiative of the legislator for their own initiative. They have no need to consult, to compare, or to foresee. The law does all that for them. The intellect is for them a useless encumbrance. They cease to be men. They lose their personality, their liberty, and their property. Try to imagine a form of labor imposed by force that is not a violation of liberty. A transmission of wealth imposed by force that is not a violation of property. If you cannot succeed in reconciling this, you are bound to conclude that the law cannot organize labor and industry without organizing injustice. When, from the seclusion of his office, a politician takes a view of society, he is struck with the spectacle of inequality that presents itself. He mourns over the sufferings that are the lot of so many of our brethren, sufferings whose aspect is rendered yet more sorrowful by the contrast of luxury and wealth. He ought perhaps to ask himself whether such a social state has not been caused by the plunder of ancient times exercise in the way of conquest, and by plunder of more recent times, effected through the medium of the laws. 
he ought to ask himself whether granting the aspiration of all men to well-being and improvement the reign of justice would not suffice to realize the greatest activity of progress and the greatest amount of equality compatible with that individual responsibility that god has awarded as a just retribution of virtue and vice he never gives this a thought his mind turns toward combinations arrangements legal or factitious organizations he seeks the remedy in perpetuating and exaggerating what has produced the evil for justice apart which we have seen is only a negation is there any one of these legal arrangements that does not contain the principle of plunder you say there are men who have no money and you apply the law but the law is not a self-supplied fountain whence every stream may obtain supplies independently of its society nothing can enter the public treasury in favor of one citizen or one class but what other citizens and other classes have been forced to send do it if every one draws from it only the equivalent of what he has contributed to it your law it is true is no plunderer but it does nothing for men who want money it does not promote equality it can only be an instrument of equalization as far as it takes from one party to give to another and then it is an instrument of plunder examine in this light the protection of tariffs subsidies right to profit right to labor right to assistance free public education progressive taxation gratuitousness of credit social workshops and you will always find at the bottom legal plunder organized injustice you say there are men who want knowledge and you apply to the law but the law is not a torch that sheds light that originates within itself it extends over a society where there are men who have knowledge and others who have not citizens who want to learn and others who are disposed to teach it can only do one of two things either allow a free operation to this kind of transaction that is let this kind of want satisfy itself freely or else preempt the will of the people in the matter and take from some of them sufficient to pay professors commissioned to instruct others for free but in this second case there cannot fail to be a violation of liberty and property legal plunder you say here are men who are wanting in immorality or religion and you apply to the law but the law is force and need i say how far it is a violent and absurd enterprise to introduce force in these matters as a result of its systems and of its efforts it would seem that socialism notwithstanding all its self-complacency can scarcely help perceiving the monster of legal plunder but what does it do it disguises it cleverly from others and even from itself under the seductive names of fraternity solidarity organization association and because we do not ask so much at the hands of the law because we only ask it for justice it alleges that we reject fraternity solidarity organization and association and they brand us with the name of individualists 
we can assure them that what we repudiate is not natural organization, but forced organization. It is not free association, but the forms of association that they would impose upon us. It is not spontaneous fraternity, but legal fraternity. It is not providential solidarity, but artificial solidarity, which is only an unjust displacement of responsibility. Socialism, like the old policy from which it emanates, confounds government and society. And so, every time we object to a thing being done by government, it concludes that we object to its being done at all. We disapprove of education by the state, then we are against education altogether. We object to a state religion, then we would have no religion at all. We object to an equality which is brought about by the state, then we are against equality, etc., etc. They may as well accuse us of wishing men not to eat because we object to the cultivation of corn by the state. How is it that the strange idea of making the law produce what it does not contain, prosperity in a positive sense, wealth, science, religion, should ever have gained ground in the political world? The modern politicians particularly those of the socialist school, found their different theories upon one common hypothesis, and surely a more strange and more presumptuous notion could never have entered a human brain. They divide mankind into two parts. Men in general, except one, form the first. The politician himself forms the second, which is by far the most important. In fact, they begin by supposing that men are devoid of any principle of action, and of any means of discernment in themselves, that they have no initiative, that they are inert matter, passive particles, atoms without impulse, at best a vegetation indifferent to its own mode of existence, susceptible of assuming from an exterior will and hand an infinite number of forms, more or less symmetric, artistic, and perfected. Moreover, every one of these politicians does not hesitate to assume that he himself is, under the names of organizer, discoverer, legislator, institutor, or founder, this will and hand, this universal initiative, this creative power, whose sublime mission it is to gather together these scattered materials, that is, men, into society. Starting from these data, as a gardener, according to his caprice, shapes his tree into pyramids, parasols, cubes, cones, vases, espaliers, distaffs, or fans, so the socialist, following his chimera, shapes poor humanity into groups, series, circles, sub-circles, honeycombs, or social workshops, with all kinds of variations. And as the gardener, to bring his trees into shape, needs hatches, pruning hooks, saws, and shears, so the politician, to bring society into shape, needs the forces which he can only find in the laws. The law of tariffs, the law of taxation, the law of assistance, and the law of education. It is so true that the socialists look upon mankind as a subject for social experiments that if by chance they are not quite certain of the success of these experiments, they will request a portion of mankind as a subject to experiment upon. 
It is well known how popular the idea of trying all systems is, and one of their chiefs has been known seriously to demand of the constituent assembly a parish with all its inhabitants upon which to make his experiments. It is thus that an inventor will make a small machine before he makes one of the regular size. Thus the chemist sacrifices some substances, the agriculturist some seed and a corner of his field to make trial of an idea. But think of the difference between the gardener and his trees, between the inventor and his machines, between the chemist and his substances, between the agriculturist and his seed. The socialist thinks, in all sincerity, that there is the same difference between himself and mankind. No wonder the politicians of the nineteenth century look upon society as an artificial production of the legislator's genius. This idea, the result of a classical education, has taken possession of all of the thinkers and great writers of our country. To all these persons, these relations between mankind and the legislator appear to be the same as those that exist between the clay and the potter. Moreover, if they have consented to recognize in the heart of man a capability of action, and in his intellect a faculty of discernment, they have looked upon this gift of God as a fatal one, and thought that mankind, under these two impulses, tended fatally toward ruin. They have taken it for granted that if abandoned to their own inclinations, men would only occupy themselves with religion to arrive at atheism, with instruction to come to ignorance, and with labor and exchange to be extinguished in misery. End of section 4